At first glance, what I want to share with you today seems like a theological exercise, um, something that people can debate, philosophize about, uh, something that seems more, maybe more heady uh, than practical. But I assure you it's not. And, and I'll tell you why in, in a simple statement. You and I live in a world that has gone mad. If you haven't been paying attention, then you, you may not realize this, but for everyone else who's watching what's happening and watching the news and seeing what's written on Twitter, posted on social media, you know things have gone off the rails. You know, I, I used to be one of those types that watched the news every single night. Um, one of the first things I would do in the morning after, after praying and reading some scripture is I'm searching. I'm searching articles, stories, just filling my mind up with world events. And, and frankly, I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore because it was so depressing. It was just so discouraging. Um, so much is wrong in our world today. I mean, just the headlines just of the past week or so that we've seen. I mean, we're, we're about to appoint someone to our Supreme Court who cannot or will not define what a woman is. I mean, that, that we're battling not just political issues today, but we're battling the very issues of our existence. What does it mean to be a human? Um, battles about sex and gender. Um, we're awarding people awards who are competing in women's sports who are men. And we can't say what a woman is or a man is. In these, I mean, we live in, in times that go far beyond being uncertain. We live in times of absolute rebellion against the will and design of God. And we're seeing the fruits of that, our rebellion, all over everywhere. And if you're not careful, you can get caught up in sort of a cycle of depression, discouragement, despair, and all of that. But you and I need to be reminded of something that's not just a theological concept, but a very practical reality. God is sovereign. When I say God is sovereign, that means there's nothing in this world, nothing in this universe over which he does not prevail. There's nothing outside of his control, nothing large, nothing small, down to the most down to the tiniest molecule, to the biggest idea that we can imagine. God rules over all of them. What does that mean for us? So I titled this message, Since God is Sovereign, God Prevails, God's in Authority, God Rules, then why pray? What's the point of our praying if God will do what God will do, if God's will will always prevail, if God's going to carry out His plans in this world, and nothing and no one can thwart Him, then what's the point of our praying? Well, let's pray about that today, and then we'll dig into this text. Father God, I pray that today we would, first of all, rightly understand your word. Father, we affirm that you are true, that you give truth, that all truth is rooted in you. You're the arbiter of truth. Father, I pray that as you reveal yourself through your word today, it would be your truth that moves us. But Father, I pray we would go way beyond just an academic exercise, an intellectual exercise, but Father, instead we would experience you, we would experience the God who, in your vast, infinite, indescribable power, you exert infinite love and mercy and kindness. And Father, we can trust you. You're not abstract. You're our Father. And you love us as your sons and daughters. 
We can run to you. We can make our needs known to you. We can trust you. We can rest in you. We can find peace in you. So, Father, today, as we look at this text and what you have done, may it transform us, not just inform us. Father, by your Spirit, work deep inside. Hit us in those places that we guard, that we hide, that we protect and shield, those places that we deny. Father, hit those places today and change us. Make us more like Christ today. Give us hope today. Give us security and certainty today in you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We pick up in Acts chapter 4. Last week, you got to hear the experience of the disciples in, in persecution with basically this response, what else are we going to do? How can we stop doing what we're doing? Because there's no other way that anyone anywhere is going to ever know God, that anyone anywhere is ever going to make it to God. There's only one means to salvation. There's only one means to eternal hope. There's only one means to the life that God created us all to live. That's through Jesus Christ. How are you going to shut that down? How are you going to stop us? We have to tell what God has done. We have to tell the goodness of God. So now faced with this crisis, the church is beginning to, to explode and signs and wonders are being done and people are being drawn by God's spirit to it. But the religious authorities and those who are protecting the status quo want to shut this down. Listen to what happens in verse 23 of chapter 4. So after they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And what the chief priests and elders said to them was, you've got to stop. This ends. This stops here. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The early church is faced with one of its first, with many to come, crises. This was a crisis of faithfulness. Will we be faithful to King Jesus? Clearly, in their minds, is a mandate. It's a mission that God has given them in Christ. Here's what we're supposed to be doing. Here's what we're supposed to be about. This is what God has called us to do. In Acts chapter 1, we saw this very clearly. You're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, this is where it begins, but it's going to expand from here. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. This is our mission. We've received the Holy Spirit to do this, and we've seen what God is doing. So what are we going to do now? Well, they faced a culture, and I want you to draw on your own minds. If I don't make it clear enough for you, in your own minds, the parallels, there's a prevailing culture of their time that wanted to silence them. They wanted to shut this down. And how would it accomplish that? Through persecution. We want to silence you through persecution. This is a culture 
that's antagonistic towards Christ, antagonistic towards the gospel, antagonistic towards the church. This is the culture that is emerging all around us. If you're not seeing this, you're not paying attention, you and I are rapidly becoming, in cultural societal standards, the bad guys. We're the bad guys now. We're the ones who stand on something called absolute truth. We're the one who says with some boldness, but this is what God says. We're the ones who say, but this is what we've all always agreed upon for years, decades, centuries even. But now we're increasingly out of step with the culture. And the message we proclaim is far beyond unpopular today. I suspect that the time closer than we'd like to admit or realize, some of what we say and believe is going to become actually illegal. If you want to see what the church is going to face in the U.S., look at what the church is facing already just to the north of us in Canada. More pastors were arrested in Canada in 2021 than in China. This is a persecution that's coming. It's a dark cloud, and it's not far away. It's hovering over us now. It's a persecution bent on silencing us. So what will we do? Well, there's so many implications of this text. One question uh, just emerges, do we believe it as strongly as the disciples did? The answer to that, by the way, is no, we don't. You say, well, you can't speak for me. No, I can't, but I can speak for Christianity as a whole. And it's clear as Christianity as a whole in Christianity as a whole, that we don't believe it as firmly as those first disciples did. You look at most surveys, modern surveys of the church, theological, practical surveys. Most people sitting in church pews, sitting in church chairs like you are this morning, many of them no longer believe that Jesus is the only means of salvation, that the Bible is infallibly God's word, that the gospel is the only means by which we will know God. Increasingly, we're giving way to all sorts of syncretism in our views, and we no longer hold these views that the early disciples did with the conviction and firmness. Do we believe it? Do we believe there's no other name given among men whereby they can be saved? Will we be silenced? They knew, the early church, the early disciples knew that God was using the power of the preached word to save people. They couldn't stop now. They knew that whenever they preached, God's Spirit was demonstrating Himself in power. They knew people were responding. What are we going to do? God has given us a commission. We've seen God backing it up with His own power. We've seen God at work all around us. How do we stop now? The truth is the same is still happening today. We're still seeing conversions happening where the gospel goes out. We're still seeing people come to Christ in faraway places, in places near. What will we do now? There's a crisis here. And so the question is this. Which will prevail? The pressures from culture and society, the threat of persecution, the threat of arrest, imprisonment, the threat of losing your social stature, the threat of losing your livelihood, the threat of being out of step, unpopular, even hated by the world that you live in. Will that prevail? Or will your fidelity to King Jesus prevail. Your understanding of who you are in Christ and that he's your king and you're a servant of the king. You're part of his army and he's given you a mission. You're part of his family. You're part of the family business of God in this world. Which will prevail? Which pressure? The pressure to be faithful to King Jesus or the pressure to succumb to the, to the opposition of this world, the persecution of this world? Well, what was their response? When this happened, the disciples come back. 
And Peter and John report, this is what we were told. What does the scripture say they did immediately? When they heard it, what did they do? They lifted their voices together to God and said, man, they prayed. That was their response. Their response to the crisis of opposition was to pray. And let me make this point in case it's just not clear in what I'm saying, and it's implicit in the text, not explicit. When they prayed, it wasn't just praying. And I don't want to minimize praying. That's not my point. My point is they didn't look at the world as tough as it was. They didn't look at the opposition that they faced. They didn't look at the corruption of leadership. They didn't look at a culture that was mostly opposed to them and say, well, you know what? Here's what we'll do. We'll sequester ourselves. We'll pull back. We'll we'll functionally retreat, and we'll just pray. We'll just pray. We'll pray that things change. We'll, We'll pray that the government shifts its positions. We'll pray that that culture somehow gives way. We'll we'll pray that somehow people will like us more, find us more tolerable, more acceptable. We'll just pray. That's not what they did. Their prayers were a means to an end. In their praying, they're discerning. They're seeking God's direction. God, what would you have us to do? And they're also seeking God's power to do it. God, give us the boldness to do what you tell us to do. God, as you make clear what your will is in our weakness, in our fearfulness, In our sense of inability, God, give us that. Don't ask us to make brick with no straw. Give us the straw that we need to do this. Give us the spine. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness. Give us your Holy Spirit's power to do this. Show us what you want us to do in the face of this. They didn't use prayer as an escape. They used prayer as a means to advance. This wasn't retreating. This was engaging. They didn't just pray. And listen to how they prayed. And this is critical stuff. Again, it's not just theological. It's, it's, it's immensely practical in how you and I approach God in light of the world that we live in today. When they begin to pray, what was the very first thing they affirmed? Listen to the words again. They lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see how their prayer began? Their prayer went all the way to the headwaters here. They didn't dive in way downstream and say, God, we're having a rough time of it down here. God, we want you to deal with our oppressors. We want you to deal with the unjust judges. We want you to deal with these false religious leaders. We want you to deal with this culture. God, we're going to the top. This is who you are. You are the God of everything. None of this that we see results outside of your control. You set it all in motion. You designed it. You created it. You supersede it all. It's all under your authority. God, you made it all. And then they appeal to the scriptures. David, speaking of a psalm, a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm, wherein David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about what's going to happen to the Messiah, Jesus. Why did the Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, rulers gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. It's a statement of God's sovereignty. If all the nations of the earth came against you, God, it's in vain. If they plot against you, God, it's in vain. If they try to upend you, God, it's in vain. If they try to usurp your authority, go against your will, contramand, contradict your power, it's all in vain. The Old Testament continues to reveal God's sovereignty in the life of Israel. Throughout history, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, and that's a good advertisement for you to join us on Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Genesis. Foundational stuff. 
not just interesting stories and character stories, but how does God work? What does God do in this world? How does God establish a people for himself? And we see God's sovereignty throughout, even when people failed, when people sinned, when they had opposition and enemies, when great hardships came, the sovereign plan of God still prevails. God is always at work, and God's always directing the plans of his people. And the early church experienced the sovereignty of God, most critically, most definitively, in the persecution, opposition, trial of, crucifixion of, burial of, and then resurrection of Jesus. They saw the sovereign plan of God. And listen to what he said. I mean, these these words are so powerful. Jesus, whom you anointed, he's the chosen one, he's the Messiah. In In this city, they were gathered against him, Jewish opposition, Herod, Roman opposition, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, pagan opposition, and the people of Israel, religious opposition, social opposition, but in all of that, in all these forces convening to oppose Jesus, you know, often there's a debate, well, who really killed Jesus? Was it the people calling for his crucifixion? Was it Pilate who allowed it to happen? Was it the Jewish leaders who demanded that it happen? And yet the scriptures tell us as we look at the wide angle from God's view, God willed this to happen. He says, everything that you planned to take place took place. Does that mean Herod is guiltless for his sin? Absolutely not. Or Pilate for his unbelief? No way. Or for those people who called for the crucifixion of Jesus? Are they absolved of any wrongdoing? Absolutely not. Yet in all of that, God is working a plan to do what he wills to take place. This is what God has planned. Now, belief that God is sovereign, that God works in all circumstances to accomplish his will, that no person, no sinful choice, no evil choice, no opponent of God will prevail, this conviction is fundamental to us as Christians. This is not a second-tier doctrine. This is first-tier. That God orchestrates things according to his will, Consider a couple of texts, Isaiah chapter 46, starting in verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, I will do it. This is God. What about Daniel? In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, he speaks of God saying, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, or none can say to him, What have you done? No one can stop him. No one can question him. He does what he wills. What about Job? Job said of God, he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. He's not ineffectual. He lacks nothing in power. What he determines to do, he does. He does not try. He does. What about Psalm 103, verse 19? The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Not just a Christian kingdom, not just a religious kingdom, but all. What about this sweeping statement of God's sovereignty in the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose 
of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. These are fundamental beliefs. So believing that God is sovereign, their first appeal, God who made everything, who rules everything, God, because you're sovereign, we appeal to you. So now we're requesting your intervention. So the question is this, since God is sovereign, why pray? They didn't have that question. In fact, they would flip it around like this. Because God is sovereign, we're going to pray. You're the sovereign God of everything, and because of that, we appeal to you. We're asking your intervention. And I think this is important note. It's just a sort of a sidebar application to the times that you and I live in today. Lest all of our prayers be bent towards God removing the pressure, taking away the opposition, making the times easier for us, more palatable to us, easier to endure, that's not what they did. They didn't pray, make the bad people go away, make our enemies quit, cause us to ascend in popularity and power, influence. What did they pray? They prayed for perseverance. They prayed for boldness. They prayed not to remove the persecution, but that they would remain faithful in it. That God will continue his amazing work while they continue to speak up. Do you see the implications for us today? When we pray for the times in which we live and we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing real persecution, our prayer should not be limited to things like government changing, policies changing, culture shifting. We should be praying that God would persevere us, that he would give us the strength and the boldness to keep standing up, keep speaking up, keep sticking together and be strong that we would not falter. We need to pray that we would not falter even as we trust in God's sovereign purposes to be done. So why do we pray? This is not an exhaustive list, which I, I realized more and more as I went through the sermon in my mind again and again, thinking, wow, this could really, this could be a long one. There are a lot of things that could be on this list. But I want to give you some that I think are critical for us, some reasons why we pray to our God who is sovereign. The first one, I think, is the clearest of all, because he's sovereign. Why do we pray if God is sovereign? Because he's sovereign. Why would I pray to a God who doesn't have the power to do anything? Why would I pray to a God who doesn't have everything and everyone underneath his authority? Why would I pray to a God to whom this world doesn't belong, who can't do anything about it? That, that would be akin to me just complaining to you about my neighbor and what he does with his music late at night or, or um, how his kids act or, or his dogs digging under my fence. I wish I could do something about it. I can listen to you, but I have really no authority there. I have no power there. When you and I pray, we're praying to the God who has authority and power over everyone and everything. That is a powerful motivation to pray. The sovereign God is the God to whom we pray, the God of heaven and earth, and that is enough motivation. Now, I, I'm not one for cheesy illustrations, but suffer me one today, okay? Because it kind of makes a point. It's a story that's been told. Maybe you've heard it before. It's one of those old preacher kind of stories, so I can't verify it's true, so let's just take it at that. But you had a small southern town that had been, it'd been a dry town in a dry county. You know, no alcohol, no, no alcohol served or sold there for years and years and years. That had been its tradition. New businessman moves to town and sees an opportunity to strike up a business rife with potential. And so he opens up a bar. He gets the permissions, begins to sell alcohol in this city, this town that had been dry, well, for generations. 
the response of the church is quick. It's definitive. Churches gather together and they hold an all-night prayer vigil that God would undo this evil act in their town. That God would shut it down. That God would drive them out. That God would fix this problem. And they prayed all night. That night, as they prayed, a huge thunderstorm came. Lightning struck. And would you believe it? Lightning strikes the bar. The bar catches on fire and burns down. Well, as a result, the owner of the bar presses or files a lawsuit against the churches that had gathered together that night to pray, blaming them for the loss of his bar. They hire an attorney, on the other hand, who defends them by saying, we had nothing to do with this. This has nothing to do with us. We're not responsible for the destruction of your bar. At the end of the hearing, the judge says this, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The bar owner believes in prayer, and the churches don't. (laughs) Listen, when you pray, you're praying, I hope, with the same sort of confidence that this ragtag band of early Christians had. And this this world is stacked up against us. And we're not going to make it without your power and your strength. We believe that you've given us commission. We believe that you've given us the keys to the kingdom. We believe your kingdom is going to come and your will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we believe those things, we are going to pray. And we are going to pray faithfully and diligently and we're not going to stop. We pray, God, because you're sovereign. Second reason we pray, and maybe this is the most important for us to get our minds around. Because in his sovereignty, God ordains some outcomes as a response to prayer. Let me say it again. We pray because the same God who's sovereign over all things and will accomplish his purposes in the world, he ordains some of those outcomes as a response to prayer. What I'm saying is God is sovereign not over just the end of things, the final results. He's sovereign over the means by which those results are reached. His plan is includes our prayers. So God in His sovereignty has ordained that His plans include our prayers. It's amazing how many major events you see in the Bible. And here's you a, a Bible study journey for yourself if, you, if you're looking for something to delve into this week. How many major events in the Bible took place as a result of praying? When people prayed, God did things. Big picture. Things like the Exodus. Moses being sent by God clearly to be his mouthpiece for the deliverance of his people out of Egypt, knowing what God sent him to do and what God told him he would do, what does he do? He prays, and through his praying, both calamity comes and relief comes, and ultimately deliverance comes. If you you look at Scripture, you'll see again and again God responding in powerful action to the prayers of his people. Now, I wanted to find a a good way to illustrate this to you, and so I I don't mind borrowing something uh, this morning rather wholesale. And this is a a great little, I guess, an article that you could read. It'll be helpful for you, I think, to understand this or to explain it to someone. This is from a little article written by John Piper called A Conversation Between Prayerful and Prayerless. So imagine two characters, prayerful and prayerless having a conversation about God's sovereignty. 
Here's how it goes. Prayerless. I understand that you believe in the providence of God. Is that right? Prayerful says, yes. Well, does that mean you believe, like the Heidelberg Catechism says, that nothing comes about by chance, but only by God's design and plan? Well, yes. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Then why do you pray? I don't see it as a problem. Why shouldn't we pray? Well, if God ordains and controls everything, then what He plans from of old will come to pass, right? Yes. So it's going to come to pass whether you pray or not, right? Well, that depends on whether God ordained for it to come to pass in answer to prayer. If God predestined that something happened in answer to prayer, it won't happen without prayer. Wait, wait a minute. This is confusing. Are you saying that every answer to prayer is predestined or not? Yes, it is. It's predestined as an answer to prayer. Okay, so if the prayer doesn't happen, then the answer doesn't happen? That's right. Wait, so the event is contingent on our praying for it to happen? And prayerful says, yes. I take it that by contingent, you mean prayer is a real reason that the event happens, and without the prayer, the event would not happen. Well, yes, that's what I mean, but how can an event be contingent on my prayer and still be eternally fixed and predestined by God? How does prayerful answer? Because your prayer is as fixed as the predestined answer. Okay, you've got to explain. It's not complicated. God providentially ordains all events. God never ordains an event without a cause. The cause is also an event. Therefore, the cause is also foreordained. So you cannot say that the event will happen if the cause doesn't happen because God has ordained otherwise. The event will happen if the cause happens. Okay, so what you're saying is that answers to prayer are always ordained as effects of prayer, which is one of the causes, and that God predestines the answer only as an effect of the cause. That's right. And since both the cause and the effect are ordained together, you can't say the effect will happen even if the cause doesn't because God doesn't ordain effects without causes. Lost yet? Can you give me some illustrations, he says. Sure. If God predestines that I die of a bullet wound, then I will not die if no bullet is fired. If God predestines that I be healed by surgery, then if there's no surgery, I'll not be healed. If God predestines heat to fill my home by fire from the furnace, then if there's no fire, there'll be no heat. Would you say since God predestines that the sun be bright, it will be bright whether there is fire in the sun or not? Well, no. Well, I agree. Why not? Well, because the brightness of the sun comes from the fire. And prayerful says, right, that's the way I think about prayer. They're the brightness, and prayer is the fire. God has established the universe so that in a larger measure it runs by prayer, the same way he has established brightness so that in a larger measure it happens by fire. Doesn't that make sense? I think it does. This is the sovereignty of God at work in our praying. Look as an example in evangelism, for instance. This great running debate for centuries in the church of the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man. And yet, what does Romans 10 say in response to all of that? How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? So the same God who elects and chooses in chapters 8 and 9, by his election, determines that it is the preaching of the word to someone who responds to it in faith by which salvation comes. Therefore, if the preaching doesn't happen, the responses don't happen. Will they be saved without preaching? What does Romans 10 say? No, they will not. So how do we hold on simultaneously to God who elects those to salvation as he chooses with our responsibility, both to preach the good word 
the good news and the true word, and if we're not saved yet, to respond to it, because that's what God has predetermined. And the same thing in our praying. God works through our prayers. And if we don't pray, then we can assume that God is not going to work in the same way. There are other reasons. Let me give you some simpler ones. How about this one? Why should we pray? Well, because we're commanded to. Maybe that should have been reason number one. It's the most basic reason. It's the most foundational one. Pray without ceasing, says 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Same ideas in Matthew 7.7, Luke 18.1, Philippians 4.6, Hebrews 4.16. Prayer is part of the revealed will of God. It's how God works. Consequently, if we don't pray, we sin. To not pray is to sin. Listen to Samuel's words in 1 Samuel 12.23. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord... By ceasing to pray for you. You don't have to look very hard in the Bible to see the expectation of God for his people that they're going to pray. Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus modeled prayer. The disciples noticed and saw the example of prayer and asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, and he did. God calls us to pray. There are other reasons. How about this one? And this goes very much with God's sovereignty and the means that God works to the ends that God works. There are provisions and answers from God that we only access through prayer or conversely that we lack because we don't pray. Let me say it simply. There are things that God will do only through prayer and simultaneously there are things that we don't have or experience from God because we have not prayed. They are things that God has ordained. They are things that God has willed, but he ordains them through prayer. Simplest verse I could give you on this. James chapter 4, verse 2. What did James say? You have not because you ask not. Now, of course, he goes on to clarify. And even when you do ask, sometimes you ask wrongly. You pray amiss. You pray so that it will satisfy your lusts, not so that it will honor him, his will, or his purposes. He says you don't have because you don't ask. That tells us clearly there are some things we would have that we don't have. That if we asked God and prayed for them, we would have, right? We can't make that text mean something else than that. It's crystal clear. Regardless of God's ultimate sovereignty, the Bible is clear that there are things we might otherwise have that we don't currently have. If we did pray without ceasing, prayer does make things happen in the world. Consider the example of Jesus. This will test your memory for those of you who have been with us for a little while. When we're going through the Gospel of Mark together. You got an event in Mark chapter 9, and the novice disciples are going out practicing what they've been taught. They're living out the mission that God is preparing them for, that Jesus is preparing them for. And so they're going out by pairs, and they go into a home, and they encounter a young boy who is possessed by a demon. Now, this demon is a destructive force, a malevolent force in this boy's life, so much so that it's trying to kill him. You may, may remember the story that what the demon is constantly doing is trying to cause the kid to kill himself by throwing himself into the fire. So he's often throwing himself into the fire. He's convulsing. And they go in, and they try to cast the demon out, and they cannot do it. Jesus appears on the scene, and Jesus then quickly and emphatically casts the demon out of the boy, in fact, telling it never to return. And when the event is over, the Bible says in Mark chapter 9, the disciples gather Jesus in private, and they say, basically, why couldn't we do that? And what was Jesus' response to them in Mark 9, 29? These come out only by, what did he say? Prayer. 
Was it God's will that the boy be delivered and saved? Yes. Does God orchestrate the end of those things to his glory and according to his purpose? Yes. The means by which he has ordained it to happen, though, was through the prayers of his disciples. Those disciples thought they could do God's will, accomplish God's ends, without the means by which God had also ordained, which was prayer. And so in that moment, can you imagine a more powerful object lesson for them? Okay, God, you sent us out into the world, and you want to affect healing, and you want to affect deliverance for people, and you want us to build your kingdom. We got this. No, no, no. You've only got part of this. You've got the end. Now, let me tell you the means. And the means is through prayer. These kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. On the other hand, Scripture also tells us there are some things that God has promised to supply us if we prayed for them in the right way. There are some things we can't have if we're not praying, and there are some things we would have if we were. Consider 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. We can go confidently in praying if we're praying by his will, according to his will, if we're echoing his thoughts. Kurt Daniel wrote an interesting article in a book called, um, a collection of works called The Reformation and Revival. And he said, the gist is this. If we pray in faith in the name of Christ with an obedient and selfless heart, for things which God has commanded us to have, then we can be assured He'll grant them. It's like Augustine's prayer, give what thou commandest and command what thou will. He said, take the matter of wisdom, for example. The matter of wisdom. We are commanded to have wisdom. Matthew 10, 16 says, be wise. Tells us to be wise. But we know practically and biblically we're born without it. We're foolish. We're ignorant. And so we're told to pray for wisdom. Does God ask us, he says, to make bricks without straw? No, he gives us a straw. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Here's something God wants us to have. Here's something God commands us to have. And here's something God tells us the means to have what he commands and desires for us to have is prayer. So we pray because that's how God provides we also know that prayer aligns us with God's will in both understanding and obedience. It aligns us with God's will. This is why the early church was praying so desperately. God, what do you want us to do? And how will we do it? How will we know what your will is? We see this big picture. We know the gospel is supposed to go out. We know the promise that there are going to be disciples to the ends of the earth. But what do we do now? What do we do in this moment? What do we do in this situation? How do we respond to this challenge or this need? This cultural moment, this social moment, what do I do now, this personal moment? God, I know I'm supposed to be an everyday missionary, but you know, in my job, I've been told that if I keep talking about this Jesus stuff, I may need to find a new job. What do I do now? What's my response now? You know, I know I'm supposed to be your your witness, but anytime I post something on my social media site, all my friends just jump on and say, and call me a bigot or close-minded or attack what I'm saying. What, what do I do now? How should I respond in this moment? Graham Goldsworthy has a rather famous quote on prayer where he says, prayer is thinking God's thoughts after him. Thinking God's thoughts after him. We don't have time to do this today for time's sake, but one of the exercises we've done on prayer and 
in our second Sunday night prayer times, one of the exercises we did was to look at Paul's prayers in the New Testament. It's a great personal study for you, something you can quickly Google and just see a listing of all the times Paul prayed in the New Testament. Through those letters, those epistles, as he prayed for the work of God in those churches. And you think about those prayers that Paul prayed, and they are, they are immense. They're not, um, they're not, they're not so small and, and so highly individualized and personalized things like you and I tend to spend the majority of our time praying for. Not that those things aren't important. We're told to bring every need to him. We're told to cast our cares on him. We're told to not worry about things, but in everything pray. So I'm not diminishing the worth of praying for small things. But when you begin to really pray, as you pray, an alignment with God's will begins to happen for us that creates future praying. We learn to pray best by praying. And the more that we're praying, and those prayers saturated with Scripture, you will see that your prayers will begin to shift over time to they're not so small anymore. They're not so micro. They become very, very big. Some of Paul's prayers, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is they may be saved. He's praying for a nation here. Doesn't mean he's not praying for the guy down the street or the person in the jail cell beside him. He's praying for nations to be saved. Or Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and following. Oh, the depth, the riches, and wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. He says at the end of that, for from him and through him are all things. He's praying for God's glory in all things. We start to pray for these big things. Romans 15, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you unity among yourselves. You follow Christ so that with one mouth and one heart you may glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, ultimately praying that we would know the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, these big prayers, and we start, to, we start to latch hold of the heart of God and how he wants us to pray. And you get to that point of prayer by praying, and that's what the disciples were doing. It wasn't just the momentary need. It wasn't just the immediate struggle. It was, God, we want to know your heart, and we want to pray that. We want to pray that that happens. Because they understood, and I close with just these final two, prayer is a means by which we are participating in God's mission. Yes, preaching is, the me- is a means. Proclaiming a means. But praying is also a means by which we participate in the mission. I love this statement by William Philip in a book called Why We Pray. He said, prayer is not a sort of cold mathematical logic, but a warm relational understanding. Prayer is the audible witness of a real relationship with God. I love that statement. The audible witness of a real relationship with God. And the truth about prayer is that God, the sovereign Lord, invites us into a place of privileged partnership with him, a real partnership in his business, if you like. And that's what our prayers are. We follow after him, we walk along with him, we learn about his business, and we have a share in it. We pray because we're his sons, and as his sons and daughters, we have come to share in God's family business. And so we're praying toward those ends. And that's what kept that alignment in the early church. We're not going outside of his will, but we're right in it. We're going to keep praying. And so we can understand that even the persecution is part of his will, and the opposition is part of his will, and the culture that we're in, and the moment that we're in is part of his will. And yes, we could wish for things to be easier, and we could wish that times be different, but these are the times in which he's placed us, and this is his will, so how will we be faithful in it? How will we be bold in it? 
And finally, a theme that we'll revisit more later, prayer also changes us. It changes us. I left that to the last because I think it's important, but not quite as important as the others. I think we have to be super careful that we don't make prayer just a psychological exercise. But I do want us to understand that praying is a spiritual exercise, a faith-building, life-changing, heart-altering exercise. You know, I mentioned at the beginning how I'd just kind of given up for the most part, now just hitting the headlines here and there, but it's hard to read and watch the news, just be inundated all the time because of just the despair that it brings and just how, how many things wrong can there be in the world at one time and how daunting is the task, how challenging are the times. But what does prayer do to me in that moment? Well, in, in one way, it humbles me. It's not about you. Never been. It's not about your ability. It's, it's about me. You need to be faithful. And if to be faithful, you feel like you're fearful, then pray for boldness, because the early church did that too. So you've got a good precedence there. It's okay to be fearful. It's not okay to not pray for boldness and expect God to give it. You've got to be faithful too. You've got to be willing to stand up. I just need you to stand up. I need you to stand firm. I need you to say what needs to be said. I need you to be immovable off of the truth. I need you to keep giving the hope of the gospel because there is no other way. I'll do the rest. You be faithful. You be firm. It's humbling. It's strengthening. And it takes away that sort of dark cloud of despair and you begin to realize, just like these earliest of apostles prayed, you, God, our King, sovereign Lord, made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. That's the God that we're praying to. I don't have to despair. I don't have to look with fear at the future. I don't have to worry about what kind of world my granddaughter will grow up in or, or that yours will. But I've got a God who's sovereign, and I'm going to pray. And the very things that he commands us to do, the very end of things, he gives us the means. But that means is prayer. What if the sovereign God right now desires to do some things in you and through you, and he has also ordained that he will accomplish them through praying, through faithful praying. Would that change your approach? What if God has an end in mind, a glorious predetermined end, just like he did with Jesus? And it's predicated on our prayers that we have not because we ask not. Would that change how you pray? Seeing God as all-powerful, all-loving, all-capable, everything under his control. Might that change how you pray? Might that change how you pray for the salvation of someone who seems closed off, indifferent, even antagonistic towards him? Might that change how you approach an impossible, seemingly impossible situation? If you saw God rightly, what's your response to the God who's sovereign today? How's that going to change how you pray? I'm going to ask you if you just bow your heads with me this morning. I've spoken much about prayer in our time together, put a, crammed a lot into that. I want us to spend some time in prayer. In fact, as our worship team is coming, it's going to lead us in a song in just a moment. I want to invite you, even as they do, as they move this way, I want to invite you to come and pray. 
I want you to if you have something that you want to bring to God in prayer, I want to ask you just to bring it. Now, I know you can pray in your seat. I know you can pray with a head bowed or standing or kneeling where you are, but I'm just going to invite you. It's just a statement of confident assurance in the sovereignty of God to hear and respond. That you come and pray. I'm going to invite you just all over this room. As the music begins, just a moment to pray. Who is it that you need to pray for? Who do you, who do you need to pray that God would change that will or that mindset? or that heart? What situation are you asking the sovereign God to step into? What confession do you need to make? Maybe we've, maybe we've rested wrongly in cold theology. Well, God, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. My prayers don't matter. When the opposite is true, the more confidence we have in His sovereignty, His power, the more committed we ought to be to praying to Him and that's the model that we see with every believer throughout biblical history. Daniel recognized, as he understood the prophecies given, that their period in captivity was limited. He figured out the window of time when it should end. What did that cause him to do? Ease up? No, it caused him to press in, and he started to pray. Ezekiel, the same thing. Moses, the same thing. Peter, John, the same thing. Paul, the same thing. Jesus, knowing full well the purposes for which he had come into this world, and that it was God's will that he would be crushed, he knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself. He breathed them. Knowing what was about to come, what did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed. Father God, you are not our servant. You are not the means to our selfish ends, our superficial desires, the satisfaction of our greeds. You are the king of the universe. You are sovereign over all. There is nothing outside of your control. Father, forgive us for prayerlessness. Forgive us. Forgive us for a low view of you. Forgive us for diminishing the value of prayer and not recognizing the purpose of it for our lives, for your purposes, for your glory, for the world's sake. God, change how we pray. By your Spirit, guide what we pray for. Teach us to pray. Father, grow our faith. We believe, help with our unbelief. And Lord, shift our praying so that we pray grand things. We pray for you to do amazing things. We pray for glorious things. And Father, for the times in which we live, the situations that we now face, we are your people by your design for such a time as this. Grant us now boldness that we may continue to speak. We ask that you would move by your spirit and do mighty things. That you would rescue people. That you would heal people. That you would change hearts and minds and lives. That for your glory you would save people. 
Father, keep us unified, focused on the mission ahead of us, steadfast and faithful, trusting in you as we long for your return. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. You are a great and awesome God, and we worship you today. In the name of Jesus.